Hi, everyone. We are here today with none other than Megan McCafferty, the New York Times bestselling author of Bumped, Thumped, and Jessica Darling series. It is so great to be here with you, Megan. Thank you. I'm a huge fan of the library, and I'm a huge fan of podcasts. So this is very exciting for me. Thank you for asking. Of course. Okay, well, I'm just going to jump right in because I was, or still am, a huge fan of the Jessica Darling series. I remember, I think, honestly, they were one of the first real YA books I'd ever read, um, which was really fun. And they were just super fun, and I loved reading them. But I was wondering, because I've read both your prequels to the series and the YA, did you ever anticipate writing the prequel because it came later? No. Um, when I finished uh, the first five books, Sloppy First through Perfect Fifths, um, I thought I was done. Like, I thought, that's it. I loved how the series um, followed these characters between the ages of 16 and 26. It was a decade. It was 2000 to 2010. It just felt really neat. And it just, and I love the way the book ended. So I thought, I'm done with these characters. I'll miss them. But I was, I was ready to move on at that point. And so, and that's why I wrote something completely different next. Bumped and Thumped are so different from the Jessica Darling series. And it was really fun for me to, tackle just a different style, different characters, etc. Um, and it really wasn't until um, my son and my friend's daughters all hit middle school age that um, I remember just how much material could come out of middle school. Um, because for me, middle school was like the worst, like just I, I was at my peak awkward and um, just everything felt so out of control in middle school. And so I was kind of seeing that happen in my real life through my son and his friends. And um, so I guess it was on my mind. And um, this is where I can't like the kind of the magic of writing works and I can't explain it, but it must have been subconscious because at some point I just had this vision of seventh grade Jessica Darling wearing the seagull mascot suit. And I don't, I didn't know how she ended up in that suit. I didn't know why she was there, but I just had this clear vision and the book just kind of built around that. And I just started like thinking about how much fun it would be to revisit her as a younger, more innocent, less jaded character. Um, and those books were so much fun to write. Um, it just, it was pure joy. They were also so much fun to read. I think I've read them probably five times. I, I still have pretty much the entire series. And whenever I'm in the mood, I'll just go back and read more about Jessica Darling because she's so relatable. And that's what I love about her. I just feel her in me, <laughs> which I guess a lot of younger girls do too. Thank you so much. Because like there's, I mean, obviously so many new books are being published all the time. So the fact that anybody goes back and rereads my books is a huge, it's a huge compliment. So thank you. One of the things that I noticed about your books is that I think most of them take place in Pineville. I know the Jessica Darling series does, and I was reading The Mall, and that takes place in Pineville, but in the mm -hmm. 90s. So, I mean, you live in Princeton, New Jersey now, and there's Pineville, New Jersey. So is there some similarities between those? Um, did you base Pineville off of Princeton? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Um, I moved to, we moved to Princeton in 2004. So that was already after um, the first three books 
well, the first two books had already been published, Sloppy First and Second Helpings. And I think I was in the middle of writing Charm Thirds when we moved here. No, the, the inspiration really is more the, the, the town where um, I grew up. Um, I grew up in Ocean County. I grew up on the Jersey Shore. Um, so though Pineville is not Bayville where I grew up, it's kind of a common, a fictionalized version of all of those towns and uh, what it was like to grow up um, in the, you know, it's this interesting, um, you know, we're near the beach, but it's also in the Pine Barrens and it's like, it really is unique to New Jersey. So uh, I drew my inspiration from where the town that I grew up in when I was Jessica's age. I noticed that I was listening to the audiobook and there were some Jersey Shore accents, I think with Drea and Gia, and it was it was a little bit close to home because I've definitely heard those accents some. And I was like, oh, this is familiar, but not to yeah. Princeton, just to generally to New Jersey. Yeah, I love it. I mean, Jer New Jersey is like its own character in these books. Um, and it's just, it's funny to me um, when I get, I hear from readers who live like far from who, who don't live in New Jersey. Like when I started writing these books, I thought, is anybody going to care about these coming of age stories of this girl working on the boardwalk? Like how relatable is that? And, um, you know, my books have been translated into 15 languages, have been published like all around the world. And I get, I've gotten, you know, responses from, from people who could not have grown up more differently than Jessica Darling, who still find her story, um, they believable and something that they can really relate to. So, um, and then that's, that blows my mind. <laughs> like it's the, it's really so funny to me that these little hometown stories had had this um, a more of a universal appeal than I ever thought that they would when I started writing them. Wow, that's, that's, wow. I never thought a setting, especially New Jersey could have such like an impact on people, but yeah. yeah. There really is such a character to it. Well, going off of stories, when and like did you first kind of realize you wanted to be a writer? Because I guess these books kind of came out uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but... 20 years ago, actually. Yeah. Well, the first one, I mean, we are... Um, I just announced two days ago, actually, um, that the, the whole series is going to get a reprint... Uh, with new covers and everything to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Sloppy First. So Sloppy First came out in 2001 and Perfect, Perfect Fits came out in 2011, 10, 11. It was 10 years. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they've been out a long time. But, Do you know what the um, covers are going to look like? Yeah. yeah I, 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 if you go on my website, you can see them. Or um, I just I just posted them. Like, just I just got permission to reveal them. Um two days ago. So it'd be interesting to hear what you guys think of them because um, I love them. Like they're totally different than the original covers, but I think they're the, the update that they needed. And um, this is already going off on a little bit of a tangent, but um, also part of it is that um, I updated it to kind of, it, it's still set in the 2000s and the story hasn't changed at all, but there's um, parts of the books, like there's language that is used in the books that is that was okay then that is just like not okay anymore. And so I got the, the freedom to go back and like change those things. And that's an opportunity that not many writers have. And I'm so grateful that my publisher like let me do that because we were hoping to introduce Jessica Darling to a whole new generation. And we want to be able to reflect the sensibilities of your generation. Um, so that's really, really exciting. So that's a little hot news for you. Wow. Yeah. 
We get all the all the hot news. I feel so well, lucky. I know. <laughs> um, I don't even remember what your original question was. <laughs> and, and just when did you kind of realize? Oh, that when did I know? Okay, yeah. Um, you tell I haven't like you know this is like haven't been, been out and like talking to people like so um, I'm easily distractible. Um, well, I can't remember a time where I didn't want to be a writer. Like my parents tell me that I started making up stories basically as soon as I learned how to talk, and I, I often say that I'm grateful that they saw creativity where like other parents might have seen like a compulsive liar, um, and they encouraged that creativity. And I had a first grade teacher who gave me a writer's notebook that said, I love to write on the cover. And so these have been like the words I've lived by, like literally like my whole life. Um, as far as um, when did I think about it being a career? I guess like, you know, if you'd asked me in high school what I wanted to do for a living, I said, I wanted to write, I wanted to write for magazines. Like that was my dream job. And so everything i made choices to make that m more than just a dream like um you know i made choices so everything that i did like could get me closer to that goal and so i took as many writing opportunities that i could whether it was writing for the school paper or writing for the literary magazine or entering contests um um when i got to college i took many unpaid internships you know it was anything to give me as much experience as i could because I didn't know anybody who worked in publishing. I didn't have any, like, I had to do it all myself. And um, so um, I got my dream job. I, my first job was at a teen magazine. And um, because I was lucky that the time I graduated, when I gradu graduated from college, it was this moment in time where it was like the golden era of teen magazines. And so there were all these new teen magazines popping up at the same time. like. Teen Vogue, Teen People, Cosmo Girl, L Girl. And so all these magazines were looking for young writers who, who, who got it, like who just knew how to write for teen magazines, and I did. And so I was also really good at writing quizzes. Um, so I got hired a lot. And um, so I worked as a writer and editor for teen magazines for five years. I got promoted five times within that five years went to three different magazines during that time. And um, it was really fun. At first it was really fun, but after a while I got tired of being told what to write and how to write. Um, because when you write for magazines, it's almost like school assignments. Like it's very specific, like what it has to be. And I just felt like my own creative voice was being stifled. Um, so, um, I decided to try, like, try to write a book. And I was taking writing classes at the time too. Like, well, I was, I was working during the day and then at night I would take um, fiction writing classes just to force me to do it. Cause it would be so much easier to just like go to happy hour or something. So if I had a class, I knew it would force me to write. And I gave myself a goal of, um, I left magazines that I gave myself, I was like, if I could get an agent and um a book deal within a year then i would you know do it if not then i would go back to magazines and uh i actually did it in six months wow. so and i that's what i've been doing ever since um i've never had to go back to magazines it's actually one of my recurring anxiety dreams that i have to go back and work at um 
Cosmo, which was the last magazine I worked for, and it was a very toxic environment, and I still have anxiety dreams about it to this day. <laughs> well, I'm glad that your anxiety dreams aren't your reality. I really admire how self-made you are. Publishing is very a very cutthroat industry, and you made it so quickly. Wow, you that's incredible. People try for years to get into it. I still, I mean, I, I say that it took six months, but it was like six months and 20 years. You know what I mean? Like, it, because like I said, from a very young age, I just was very focused on my goal of, of being involved in publishing. Um, whether it was, I thought for a while I might do book publishing, like be a book editor. And I realized that wasn't for me, but like I said, I, it was very, um, I made very deliberate choices you know, to, to get me to it because I knew, first of all, like I said, it's extremely competitive and I knew there would be, would be a lot of people who did have the types of connections that I didn't. So I had to, um, I don't want to say like, woe is me, but like, you know, I, I still like, I worked on the boardwalk. This, when I graduated from college, I didn't have a job. All my other friends had jobs. Um, so I was working six days a week on the boardwalk and um, uh, and then one day a week, I would go into the city for this unpaid internship at YM. So I was going back and forth and eventually YM hired me. But like, at the, it could have been a lot easier for me, like, oh, to be like, oh, it's such a hassle, like to commute into the city. And what I realized was like, this is it. Like, this is my shot. I have to go for it. And I didn't, that's my first job, so. <sighs> That's that's very impressive. You're very self-made. You really get after it. That's that's very impressive. Thank you. One of my questions is, who is your favorite author, and how have they transformed your work? Like, if you hadn't read them, your books would probably be different. So, how have they made your work better and um, inspired you? Well, I'd say my most it, the most influential author in my life would have to is absolutely Judy Bloom. Um, you know, I was obsessed with her books in when I was a kid. And um, I love that she was from New Jersey. Like, so that made me feel closer to her. And in a way, it made it feel possible to be a writer. Um, not really having any idea just how enormous a superstar she was. She was just like my favorite author, you know. <laughs> um, so definitely, I mean, she and her books were all um, you know, contemporary realistic fiction about kids that I understood and recognized. And that's the same thing that I, I try to accomplish in my work as well. Um, you know, I, I, I like writing realistic stories about real people, people that you could say, if, if it's not, you know, if you can't necessarily identify with the character, but you know people who are like them, right? And that's how I always felt when I was reading Judy Bloom. I mean, she wrote about topics, you know, uh, you know, like about divorce. My parents weren't divorced, but I still like was gravitated to that story. It didn't necessarily have to be something that was true to my own life, but I recognized that it was true to somebody else's. Um, and I really, really love that about her work. And she's still working. Um, she's such a badass. Like, you know, she's still like one of the most censored authors in history. And she, you know, advocates for freedom of speech and um, she's just wonderful. And I really would not be the author I am today if I hadn't read her. Oh, That's amazing. <laughs> and I met her once and I was such a geek and I, I totally geeked out and I was so embarrassing. But 
I, I, I lost it when I met her. But anyway, but she was so she couldn't have been nicer about me being a total just silly person in her presence. Uh-huh. How old were you when you met her? Was this recently? I was an adult. I was a full on adult and I still lost my mind. Um, this was now probably about 15 years ago, but I but it was. Uh, yeah, I met her. A friend of mine was very good friends with her, and we both were at um, my friend's baby shower. And we happened, mm-hmm. yeah, I happened to get into the elevator with her, and wow. um, she probably could not have waited to get out of that elevator with me by the time we got to my friend's apartment, because I was just gushing. I bet she was very excited that all, and another author admired her so much. I, I hope so. I, I feel that way when younger published authors are a complimentary to me. Like that is um, in the new edition um, of the Sloppy First books, there's a foreword uh, written by Rebecca, Rebecca Searle, who just had a best-selling book this year called In Five Years. And he she also wrote Famous in Love, which was turned into a TV show for a while. And so she's very, very successful. And, um, you know, I remember when she told me that Sloppy First is what made her want to be an author. You know, and that's huge. It's huge. Like I, I, so I'm like, I remember how, you know, how special it was for me to be able to tell Judy that. So it means a lot when other authors tell me that about my own work. Judy Bloom was, I've read her honestly when I was younger, but I do remember I loved her books. I think, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret was one of her books I read. I cannot remember for the life of me what the other ones were, but I do know she is very talented, but that's, The elevator story is a very good story. <laughs> I feel like if you if you get the opportunity to meet an author, that's the way to do it. They don't have any out that you gotta talk to them. <laughs> You're so trapped. Fun. You're going to listen to me and how much I love you. Yeah. Well, I wanna talk more about Jessica Darling just because she's a character that everyone loves and I I so much admiration for her. Um, but Jessica Darling was also a movie which I watched it so fast on Amazon Prime. I, I heard she was on there and I went over and checked it out. But I, I know that you also were involved in the process, but what? how did that work and what did it look like being involved in the screen production of your work? It was honestly um, a phenomenal experience. I, I, in talking, I've had several friends who have had their books made into TV shows and movies and their experiences have not been anywhere near as positive as mine. Um, I like to think it's because it was a very female um, uh, led production. Um, The producers were female, the director was female, the screenwriter was female. And I'm just thinking that they just brought a lot of just like positive, awesome, kick-ass female energy to the whole, the whole project. Um, You know, they once you sell like a, a your book gets options into a bookshare book um, into a movie or whatever, um, the author really loses all control. Like even the most famous authors, very 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 few authors have any control over like what happens to their work um, when they have it optioned. Um, and they were really went out of their way to include me. They showed me an early draft of the script. They included me in on key casting decisions. Um, they invited me and my family to the set in Los Angeles. So we got to go and I got to see that mascot scene that I was talking about earlier that, you know, sparked the whole thing. That's the scene that they were filming 
like while we were there, which just seems like this beautiful, like kind of full circle moment. Um, and it was just, um, I really c can't say anything negative about it. The only, I think my only um, regret or is that more people don't know about it. Um, you know, it was, it was always intended to be, um, you know, digital uh, only, which now in time of pandemic seems like, like everything's being released digitally. Like people are, you know, bypassing theaters, but you know, two years ago, um, it wasn't, that wasn't um, the norm. And it really, it wasn't the first um, digital only release that this particular production company had worked on. And I think that they just hadn't quite figured out the marketing aspect of it and how to get the word out. So that I would say, I would say that was the only thing about it that um, was a little disappointing because I really love the movie. It was so low budget. I mean, the micro, micro budget. And I think they did a, a beautiful job on it. I think the cast is wonderful. I think they, it's perfectly cast. And I just think it's a really fun, it's a fun movie. It's just really, it's just really adorable. And I'm, I'm super proud of it. Even though I didn't really have anything to do with it. <laughs> besides creating the book that it was based on. What things made you cast certain people? I'm so curious to know. I want to be an actress, so casting yeah. and like the behind the scenes of all of that. I want to hear your expertise. Did you see somebody and just went, oh, you have the right look? Yes. Yes. So they, so the character that they were torn about was the Alec, the Alec Marcus character. Um, and um, so they showed me, they actually sent me like the screen test. Like, they sent me, they're like, please don't share this with anyone, but here are the, here are the, here are the, the screen tests. And so they showed me um, him, uh, two actors doing the scene with the girl who eventually became Jessica Darling. And she said, uh, so basically the, it was um, my producing part. The producer came to me and she says, look, um, I feel really strongly about one person so the other producer feels very strongly about another. I'm not going to tell you either way which one. We really want you to kind of break the tie. So I'm like, okay. And I was really nervous because I was like, what if I can't tell? And honestly, as soon as I, I saw um, uh, um, Jacob, the actor, he just had a goofiness to him. There was just something to him that it was sly and, and just, it, it was just, I was just like, it's him. I'm like, it's obviously him. Like, how do you, how did you think it's the other person? And my enthusiasm for him is what put it over the edge and he was cast and he was great. So I think honestly, and you know, where I wouldn't, if he was, if it was another role or something, it, it, he wouldn't necessarily been for right for another part, but he was just so right for this part. And it's not like the other kid was bad. It's just, it wasn't, he just lacked it. There's just, just, there was just a presence that was that was lacking in this other actor that the other kid had. So I think it were a lot of me as far as like, um, you know, like so much of any creative field, so much of it is so subjective, you know, like, and, and you could be the perfect person one day and not the next. And, you know, part of whether it's writing or acting or musicians, like, you know, part, you really have to love the craft of it because there is so much rejection that if you don't love it, it, it can be very hard to, um, to stay with it, honestly. Um, and I say that as somebody who's been do doing this for 20 years. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that movie was such a good movie. I, I just, 
I felt the parallel between the movie and the book a lot. And I don't know. It just, I can't, it came out two years ago, correct? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So I am. So what is time? I don't know what time is anymore, but I think it was <laughs> two years ago. I must have been maybe a sophomore in high school, but it still stuck with me and I still wanted to watch it because Jessica Darling in that is what, seventh, eighth grade, but her character, and this kind of leads into what I want to ask you next about the timelessness of her character, I think is something that, I don't know, it really, it's, she still sticks with me today and I still see her in myself, but how, like, could you talk more about the idea of just the time, like, how do you, what makes your book or Jessica Darling stand out and stick with people? I guess maybe because it's super relatable, but how, how did you execute that? For me, timelessness is about connecting to characters' emotions. And so if you write characters who express genuine feelings, the surrounding details, like, don't matter as much. You know what I mean? And I think that I learned that lesson as a reader myself, when I um, read The Catcher in the Rye for the first time when I was about 12 or 13 years old, um, you know, this was a book that was published in 1950, I think. And and like the songs, the movies, the actors, the, the slang, like were totally outdated. Like, and I, you know, I, I didn't know quite frankly like what he was talking about, like when it was come to the came to that stuff, but the confusion that Holden Caulfield feels, um, quite frankly, his depression, um, is something that I totally identify with. And he expressed thoughts that I didn't know how to articulate myself. So, and I, I think, and that changed me as a reader, and I guess as a writer, because that's now my goal with all of my books is that, you know, the Jessica Darling series, I, I wrote them like as a time capsule. Like I, I decided to be very specific in all the pop culture references to say, this is what life was like in the year 2000, 2001, et cetera. And hoping that the, what Jessica goes through in missing hope and feeling completely out of control of her body and her parents not understanding her and, you know, hating her hometown, yet feeling somewhat loyal to it too, like all of these things, the breaking away from your parents and breaking away from everything that you've been up to that point in your life. And that's all universal. And, and I think that that's why these books still um, connect with readers and hopefully with this new, you know, the reissuing uh, issuing of the new um, editions, um, that will prove to be true. And that, that readers who are now 15, 16 today will love her just as much as you did when you read them and readers did back in 2001 when it first came out. I definitely well, noticed. Oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, so that's an even better answer than I was hoping for. I, I don't know what you were going to say, Lily. But <laughs> I was going to say that I noticed in the mall with the pop culture references, the 90s. I mean, I wasn't alive in the 90s, but um, I felt like I was there. But it also felt like it could take place at any time. It was very unique to the 90s. But then at the same time, I was like, I don't feel out of my depth in this. I feel like she's a normal girl. I feel like I can relate 
to being in a mall, obviously. Right. Like, you did a good job incorporating that pop culture element or 90s pop culture with making the reader feel like it could be anywhere and that they would still fit into it. Oh, thank you so much. That That is a huge compliment because that was my that was my goal. That was the goal. Like, you know, I was definitely having fun with the pop culture stuff because it was just, I mean, there's just so much material to, to make fun of and, <laughs> and to have fun with. Um, but I also didn't want it to be a distraction. Like, and it had to be more than that. It had to be, it just can't be like, oh, 90210 reference. Oh, scrunchies reference. Oh, like that can only get you so far, mm. you know? And that might be a book that you read once and are like, haha, that's funny. But, but it's the evolution of her relationship um, with Drea, with her parents, with herself, you know, that hopefully is what will make you want to return to it like at another point or, or that it will stick with you like longer than the jokes do. Definitely. I think my favorite part about the mall was the cabbage patch dolls because um, I actually think I had a cabbage patch doll way, way long, long time ago, but I remember being terrified of them. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't remember my doll's name or anything. But I just remember that they scared me for whatever reason. And I know, I think the point of them was to kind of, honestly, I don't even, they, they were a little creepy to me. Um, what, what's I, had I had so many, I remember all their names. Oh. What, what, were, what were their names? Um, there was uh, Cornell Teddy, Rosaline Dawn, That's Ste Stephanie Amelita. It was Stephanie with an F. Um, Letty Thelma, I had a whole brood. And then I had a cat because they made like pets and uh, my cat was named Calliope. Um, yeah, I don't know, stuck. I can't remember um, the names of like my neighbors and I can remember my Cabbage Patch Kids names from. I love that. Well, I wanted to ask one more question about Jessica Darling before yeah. we transfer. Um, so I remember reading the books and I loved reading through her emails because one thing I really admire about authors is when they incorporate more than just the baseline story, when they'll have that little extra thing. And I think for me, the emails kind of did that where you could really get to see her thought process. But also I feel like when I text or email something, my voice sometimes comes off a little different. Mm. And I Maybe that's just because when you're behind the screen, you have the opportunity to say things that sometimes you don't say out loud or I don't know, really. But her reading those emails just was really interesting. But I was wondering if you ever wrote Hope's responses out or if you ever kind of thought about what she might say or anything. Um, I did. Um, and actually, um, at least to the public, Hope's emails came first. So um, when... I, part of our pitch to my publisher at the time was that, again, I had all these connections in teen magazines. So I, for a year and a half, I think, leading up to the publication of Sloppy First, wrote, had an online series with Twist Magazine, where I published Hope's emails to Jessica. Oh. So for a year and a half, nobody knew anything. No, Jessica, like, they only knew about Jessica Darling what they knew through Hope. What? And 
Yeah, and they're lost to history. I can't find them. I mean, I don't know. I actually haven't really tried that hard. Maybe if I went on the way back and home, probably. Yeah, I, you know, honestly, I haven't really tried that hard to find them. Maybe we could find them. But um, but yeah, so I, I did. And Hope had her own storyline um, that is only hinted at sometimes in, in um, Sloppy First. But she had her whole thing going. And then the idea was, that after a year and a half of reading about Hope, that readers would be excited to find out about Jessica, who was the person she was writing to the whole time. And so public really liked that. And um, it helped build um, advanced excitement um, about the book. So. Wow, I I never knew that. Wow, okay. I really want to find them now. I, I'm so curious to know what she would have said. I, yeah, maybe you can find them. I might be able to find them in like in a word doc somewhere. If I do, I'll, 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 I'll send them to you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I guess going off of that too, did you ever kind of expand upon any of the other characters views or? No, no. And I've been asked a lot to write Marcus's journal. Oh my God. Yeah. And, um, I won't because I'm afraid it'll just read like fanfic. Like I'm really, afraid. like I just, don't want to go there um so and i and again like i i i've been asked a lot if i will write about jessica as a as a middle-aged woman oh my gosh <laughs> like jessica the menopause years and it's like do you really want that no. nobody wants that but you think you do but you really don't you, you um, want to live with them you want to live their whole life with them but yeah no, you really don't you can but I, I, and I really love and I really love how the series ends up I I, I really love perfect fit this I love the ending I feel like it's ambiguous but hopeful and I just would rather leave it there I just would rather leave it there so you know but maybe talk to me in 10 years and I'll be like <laughs> that's a good darling the menopause years yeah. <laughs> no I I totally respect that Marcus honestly was one of the most interesting characters to me. I think what really surprised me was his decision to convert to a monk for, or like become a monk was really interesting. Um, and I, I guess I hadn't really read about that in literature before. So I don't, he, he was a cool guy. He was a really cool guy. Very frustrating for Jessica, but very oh, yeah. fun for readers. <laughs> very kind of absurd and i noticed that especially in your book the mall there's this kind of absurd humor like anytime something happens it's always not exactly to the max but it's described and you're just like oh my goodness can cassie not catch a break like every at every turn there's something crazy going on which leads into one of my next questions which is about the mall and i noticed that when i was reading it you referred to kind of like sexy skimpy clothes as bimbo clothes and the girls who wear them as bimbets and there's a chapter called bimbo dress and there's kind of like a callback to like oh yeah that dress was a bimbo dress throughout the story and then you also compare a girl to a chihuahua and say she wasn't house trained so i was just wondering why you chose to use that language in your book first of all i really respect you for asking me this question directly because other some people wouldn't be you know have the courage to ask and I, actually, I really appreciate the question um real people aren't perfect Real people are complicated and often have conflicting uh, points of view. Um, to me, the most compelling characters in fiction have flaws. I mean, if a character only says and does nice things, it would be the most boring book in the world. So 
it doesn't give it doesn't give a character anywhere to go and just like without any growth like what's the point of following this person so to address the specifics that you mentioned um you have to think about who cassie worthy is in this story she's not always likable i mean at the start of the book she's judgmental she's elitist especially about education Very true. she's a try hard um and she's definitely sexually repressed and so of course her reaction to in my mind as a writer her reaction to seeing her boyfriend making out with this girl who's not her <laughs> would be fury like she's going to be furious so she's not going to say oh look at that adorable girl with the beautiful curly hair making out with my boyfriend like no she's gonna be like she's gonna call her a feral chihuahua or whatever she calls her now is it nice no <laughs> but it it is a more genuine reaction and and similarly cassie's really insecure about and confused about her own sexual not sexuality, but just just in her skin about being sexual. Um, and because she's 17 and she's inexperienced, um, she takes it out on other girls. She takes it out on Drea. She takes it out on the clients at Bella Rosa. And she takes it out on, even on her mom when her mom decides she needs to, like, you know, get a post-divorce makeover. Um, so, you know, it, it, I feel like it's, it's envy masking as superiority. Mm-hmm. And so... If she started and ended the book calling girls bimbos, that would be a problem because then she hasn't changed at all. But I'm hoping that what you see is how her perspective on all these people that she's been judgmental about, whether it's the guy in the arcade or, you know, um, you know, all the all the cast of characters, um, how it changes over, over the course of her, of that summer. And so, you know, the use of bimbo, bimbet, et cetera, definitely not feminist, even though she thinks she's a feminist. That's, yeah, but, I noticed that. Right? Yeah. Actually, she thinks she's a feminist, but the time she's not acting like one. And it isn't until she kind of goes through this period of self-discovery that she, that she realizes, like, that she's been, like, a, I don't want to curse, but, like, that she's not been great. Like, I think it's one of the books, she's like, I've been awful to everybody this summer. And so... um so again, even though there's like not feminist choices, I still think that this is a really feminist book because ultimately it's about the power of female friendship. It's about women helping other women and uplifting other women. And it's also one of the choices that the romantic relationship with Sam Goody is really more of a side plot and not the main story. So I hope I have answered your question in a way that makes sense. Um, but uh you're not the only person who have who has called me out. Hi guys. So unfortunately, the audio cut out for the last couple minutes of this episode, but I just wanted to come on here and say thank you so much to Megan McCafferty for coming on our podcast. This episode was so much fun, and I will catch you guys with another episode of Keeping Tabs soon. Bye.